The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Maximizing the Potential of Immunotherapy in Multimodal Management of Unresectable Stage 3 Non-Small Cell Lung Cancer. Collaboration is crucial. Patient selection is paramount. Close monitoring is critical. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash DDV860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Hello and welcome to this CME activity brought to you by Peerview Live, uh, focused on stage 3 non-small cell lung cancer. My name is Stephen Liu. I'm a medical oncologist from Georgetown University, and I am joined by a stellar group of uh, thoracic oncology specialists, many of whom I'm sure you recognize. Joining us from the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia, Dr. Charu Agarwal is our medical oncologist. Charu, thank you for being with us today. Thanks for having me. From Atlanta, Georgia, in the Winship Cancer Institute of Emory University, Dr. Kristen Higgins. Kristen, thanks for taking the time. Good to be here. And joining us from Montefiore Medical Center, New York, New York, Albert Einstein College of Medicine, Dr. Brendan Stiles is our thoracic surgeon. Brendan, thank you very much. Hi, everybody. Great to be here. Today, we'll go through stage three non-small cell lung cancer, talking a bit about the staging system and the current standards of care and how that is shifting. We'll close then with a case series on our virtual tumor board with actual cases from our practices uh, showing how we think through some of these very challenging cases, and if there's time at the end, go through some questions from the audience. Stage 3 non-small cell lung cancer is a very heterogeneous disease, and it is significantly impacted by the introduction of immunotherapy. Uh, this slide illustrates the path immunotherapy has taken in the management of non-small cell lung cancer, and I think it's pretty remarkable how quickly the field has moved. Immunotherapy in non-small cell lung cancer is a relatively recent development. We had approval first in the salvage line setting, second line and beyond, after consistently showing survival benefits over docetaxel chemotherapy with our initial approvals back in 2015. In 2016, introduced in the first line space after Keno24 showed an improvement in survival with pembrolizumab over chemotherapy in the frontline setting, then combinations of chemotherapy and immunotherapy in 2017, our stage three approval with dervalumab after chemoradiation in 2018, and imminent approvals, we suspect, in the perioperative setting as well. Immunotherapy um, in the past five or six years, really going from something we used as a salvage therapy to our standard of care for most patients with driver-negative non-small cell lung cancer. Stage three is certainly an area that has benefited from the integration of immunotherapy in our standard of care. One thing to remember is stage three is a very heterogeneous disease. Our current staging system, the AJCC-TNM staging system, shows how we get to stage 3, and there are many different routes there. It can be based on sheer size of the tumor, um, uh, on the tumor measurements, or on nodal involvement. And while stage 3 is one stage, uh, I think you'll agree, Dr. Stiles, uh, there are many different types of stage 3. Now, nodal staging here is, is of the utmost importance because we can judge tumor size roughly based on imaging. But uh, we can't rely on imaging only for nodal staging. Am I still correct in saying that, Brendan? Oh, completely. And as all of you know, I think these are probably the hottest topics at our tumor boards, you know, how to think about these patients and how to stage them. Just like stage three itself is a heterogeneous disease, I think we do a heterogeneous job of staging. Hopefully this day and age, all these patients are getting PET scans. But then the real question comes in on how hard do we work to prove or disprove N2, N3 disease? Most centers now do EBIS routinely, which I think is great and easy on the patients. Um, but are we really ruling out N3 disease? Are we checking nodes on both sides? Is mediastinoscopy indicated for a, a negative EBIS? I think all these things come into play just because the nuances of management, which we're going to talk about in the upcoming um, hour, will really show you we have so many options now. It's just really critical to stage these patients well. I think that when we make assumptions, we can really uh, undertreat or overtreat, both of which would be um, uh, things we need to avoid. Once we firmly establish a diagnosis of stage 3 non-small cell lung cancer, I think the challenges are just beginning because we have many modalities. It was clear for many decades that single modality therapy was not enough, and our outcomes with surgery alone, for example, were quite poor. This is a multimodal disease and requires uh, treatment from multiple disciplines and some or all of the specialties represented on this call, depending on the specific clinical details and characteristics of the patient's and that's why I think this disease, maybe more than any other in thoracic oncology, relies on the conversation that we have in our multidisciplinary tumor board. Uh, Charu, at Penn, how is your multidisciplinary tumor board set up? How are you making these decisions? 
Yeah, so we have a robust uh, multidisciplinary tumor board that um, occurs uh, weekly. Um, and we have, you know, representation from not just radiation oncologists and surgical oncologists, but in addition to um, medical oncology, we have interventional pulmonology pulmonologists who um, I think are crucial as we discuss staging, uh, you know, using approaches such as bronchoscopy and EBUS approaches to perform mediastinal staging, which may be less invasive than performing mediastinoscopies. But also, I think, increasingly important to have pathologists who can really help uh, determine, um, you know, histology, not just histology, but also pdl one staging, molecular pathologists who can help us with uh, sequencing as well as uh, discussions regarding molecular testing. And then we also have a nurse navigator who I feel is the most crucial person in certain situations as it comes to integration of multimodality treatment. You know, I think that the conversation is important because it's something that doesn't lend itself too well to algorithms and flowcharts because there are so many variables in each case. We really need to, to tease out. In, in, you know, thinking of factors with the patient, we certainly have to consider performance status, uh, weight loss, comorbidities, pulmonary function, other organ function like heart function, patient preferences, social, financial factors. Do we need to think about transportation, about time off of work, about support at home, and other factors about the tumor? You know, we certainly treat a stage 3A different from a 3B and a C, but even within that, for N2, we may treat a bulky N2 different from a microscopic N2. We need to think about, is this technically resectable, not just if the patient is operable, and can we deliver radiation to the curative doses? And for that, we think a little bit about pulmonary function tests. I think most of us Think of PFTs as something we share with the surgeon, sort of calculating postoperative FEV1. But Kristen, this is something the radiation oncologist needs as well. Is that right? Yeah, I think it's best practice to have a baseline understanding of your patient's pulmonary function. Um, that can be really helpful when you're counseling the patient in terms of any long-term side effects that they may have when it comes to their respiratory status. Um, it can also um, play a role in, in the type of radiation dose constraints that you're applying to the radiation plan. Now, I will say in times past, there were limitations on sort of the lower limit of PFTs that would make somebody treatable with radiation. Our radiation therapy techniques have evolved quite a bit over time. And I would say that for most patients, we are able to safely deliver a curative dose of radiation um, with the exception of somebody that may have an underlying interstitial lung disease or, or pulmonary fibrosis. And that's something that you certainly would be able to, to catch on, on pulmonary function tests if somebody hasn't been previously diagnosed. Um, so it is important to, to get that. But another point in the era of the COVID-19 pandemic is it's getting very hard to get pulmonary function tests. So, um, you know, it's sort of something that we, that we try to get um, to the best of our ability. Great point. Now, Charo described her multidisciplinary tumor board. Is it set up in a similar way at Emory? Yeah. So we... Um, have the same group of, of doctors and, and support staff. We involve our APPs as well. Um, we also have administrative support for our tumor board, which I think is really important in terms of just keeping track of all of the, the uh, patients that need to be presented and so forth. During the pandemic, we switched to a 100% virtual format. And that's actually been very good for our program because it allows us to involve all of our treatment sites across our enterprise. And it really allows for, I think, the most inclusive conversation um, when everybody's sort of on the same platform. And we're going to stay virtual. We really, everybody really likes it. And I think we get better participation. I think virtual is, is great. When we did our in-person um, tumor boards, we had our pathology camera hooked up to the screen, but they could never get that pointer to work, that little sort of <laughs> glow-in-the-dark pointer. But now on the screen, there's no excuse and the pictures are clear and I don't have to pretend that I'm seeing palisading anymore. They can really point it out to us. So I think it's, and it's such a great learning tool. I mean, for all trainees, students, uh, a thoracic tumor board really is the highest yield, I think, in terms of, of education. We talk about, you know, all stages really run the gamut. And these conversations, the thought processes, um, really, I think, are, are quite enlightening. Um, you know, I've found sitting in a, on different tumor boards that they all have a very different personality. And maybe it's based on who's who's running them. You know, I think it, at Cleveland Clinic, for example, pathology really is running those tumor boards. At Georgetown, it's pulmonary, interventional pulmonary medicine that's running our tumor boards. Brendan, what's the tumor board uh, like at Einstein? 
it's very similar to as you described, and really COVID really helped us go virtual, which has been a, a great thing for us as well. Um, ours is run by medical oncology, but with lots of input from all the same teams that all of you mentioned. I think one of the best parts about Zoom, we probably all have that person who talks a little too much at Tumorboard. You can just mute the person now, which is the best thing. Um, but uh, but ours is a real collaborative group, and I completely echo what you say about pathology, about radiology, being able to just pull up things immediately. It's been it's been a game changer for us. And, and I also echo what Kristen said. It's really allowed us to include um, offsites who may not have as much experience with the day-to-day -day challenging lung cancer cases that we see. And, and that, I think, is really helping patients to get that multidisciplinary care um, option um, quite easily. Yeah, I think these all need to be discussed. And I don't know if there's a such thing as a straightforward stage three non-small cell. They're all so unique. They all need to be discussed. And, and it really requires all of our different expertise. We've seen the field move fairly rapidly um, and more involvement, I think, of medical oncology with the introduction of the Pacific Regimen. As a reminder, the Pacific study, a randomized phase three trial um, that did change our standard of care, this included patients with stage three unresectable non-small cell lung cancer that had already completed chemo radiation, had received at least two doses of platinum-based chemotherapy, and had no evidence of progression. Patients were then randomized two to one to receive dervalumab, an anti-PDL1 antibody for one year, or placebo. What we saw from Pacific, um, it did represent our population, uh, a good split between um, uh, non-squamous and squamous, uh, most patients having some response or stability um, to, to treatment. These data were recently updated, ASCO 2021 by Dr. David Spiegel, showing a five-year survival follow-up. And our five-year OS rate is now 43%. What I think is most exciting is it's not so different from the four-year survival rate. We are really seeing a flattening out. Our median survival um, in our standard arm with chemoradiation alone was 29 months. With chemoradiation plus consolidation dervalumab, our median survival is 48 months. It's a hazard ratio of 0.72. Pretty dramatic improvement. And I found this data particularly exciting. These are the five-year PFS data. And what we see, again, the difference between year four and year five, pretty minimal. At five years, we have one out of three patients with no evidence of progression. With our standard treatment, we won't see progression in one out of five. With the addition of dervalumab, it jumps to one out of three. Charlie, let me ask you this question, not to mince words. With the addition of dervalumab after chemoradiation, are we curing more people with lung cancer? Yeah, and I think the answer is absolutely yes. Um, you know, we see this in the five-year overall survival data, which I think was really striking uh, when it was presented this year at the annual ASCO meeting. You know, we haven't seen these numbers in all of our training when we used to think about chemoradiation for stage three, unresectable patients with or patients with unresectable non-small cell lung cancer before. And I think it's it's really uh, encouraging to see that uh, we are seeing stabilization of the survival curve. We're seeing a tail. Um, and I think uh, we can safely say at this point, we are clearly uh, benefiting uh, these patients. And I think we'll discuss a little bit more about the nuances of can actually, um, who, who may benefit the most. And I think uh, there's a little bit more work to be done in that setting. But absolutely to your question, Stephen, I think we're definitely, we've improved the bar uh, and we've, we've improved um, outcomes with the, with the use of Darvalumab. Yeah, this really is, is, it's not a subtle difference. I would consider this really our standard of care, not something that's optional, but not free of toxicity. And a question we get asked a lot a specific toxicity um, that people are concerned about is pneumonitis. You know, pneumonitis is something we can see after chemoradiation alone, and we can also see it with immunotherapy alone. When we combine them in the early stages of this study, when it was still going on, I think that's what most of us were worried about. Would we see very high rates of pneumonitis? And fortunately, we did not, but we still can see pneumonitis. So, Kristen, let me ask you, when we see a patient who presents with shortness of breath, we get a CAT scan, we see ground glass changes consistent with pneumonitis. We're going to treat that person with steroids. But how do you tell the, the difference between an immune-mediated pneumonitis and a sort of run-of-the-mill radiation pneumonitis? Well, sometimes it can be difficult. But the first thing that I do is I, I pull up the scan and I, I pull up the radiation treatment plan on the next monitor side by side. And I look at the isodose lines, the dose distribution on the axial CT scans. And I try to understand if the ground glass changes are uh, geographically located within the radiation field. Um, and many times it's not the high dose radiation field where you're seeing the ground glass. Many times it's in that intermediate dose distribution, which could be 
a couple centimeters away from the tumor. Um, but still, that that is most consistent with radiation-related uh, pneumonitis. And, and I think when you're seeing changes in the contralateral lung, uh, clearly outside of the radiation field, those are the instances where you can um, really sort of make a confident decision that you think this is coming from immunotherapy. There are other times, though, when it's really difficult to, t- to tell, and, and it could be uh, multifactorial with pneumonitis coming from both modalities. It's not as clear-cut um, for the majority of our patients. Now, you'll treat both of those types of pneumonitis with steroids, and, and we hope exactly. that they would respond. It gets a little nuanced if we think we're going to re-challenge that patient, and maybe the timing matters if it happens right away versus at month 11. Um, and it, it, you know, if patients do recur, we might also view that toxicity um, in a different light, thinking about subsequent lines of therapy. Would it be safe to give immunotherapy uh, later on in the course if needed? But overall, fortunately, the rate of pneumonitis seen in Pacific was fairly low. If we look at the safety summary, we can see that the rate of any grade pneumonitis uh, or radiation pneumonitis was about 33% with trivalumab, about 25% with placebo. So not insignificant, but not all that different from the standard control arm. And we can see overall the, the safety profile with Dervalimab, I think, was very reassuring in these studies. So when we think of the use of Dervalimab, um, uh, one of the, the questions really has to do uh, with imaging afterwards. Now, in the past, after chemoradiation, we would wait some time to get our first imaging scan. Uh, and now, based on Pacific, we're often doing that scan Right away, Kristen, is is it more difficult to interpret that scan right after chemo radiation? Well, I like to explain to patients and their families that that first scan right after we finish radiation is to make sure that your cancer has not progressed, so that we can proceed with immunotherapy, assuming that side effects have resolved. Um, radiation works slowly on the tumor, so you're going to expect to see tumor changes really dynamically over the next year to 18 months. Um, And, you know, radiation fibrosis takes time to develop um, and tumors react slowly to radiation. And even sometimes, occasionally you could get treatment-related inflammation that can even sometimes make the tumor look bigger on that very first scan. So I think it's just important to realize that the changes in the local tumor are going to be uh, prolonged and dynamic over the course of the patient's follow-up. And that first scan is really for the sole purpose to make sure there is no progression. Now, uh, Charo, we're using Dervalimab here and in the Pacific regimen. Dervalimab is given every two weeks. We've since got an FDA approval for extended dosing. What's your practice been with the dosing of Dervalimab and has that changed at all during the pandemic? Absolutely. So, you know, we welcomed the dose change uh, during the pandemic um, and adopted it pretty, uh, pretty immediately. Um, and I think patients welcome it. I think, you know, coming in once every month for a year um, is much better than coming once every two weeks. So we, we've adopted it. I have no reservations in using it. In fact, even before um, this was approved by the FDA, there were lots of products <clears throat> that were ongoing that had already incorporated the 1500 milligram Q4 week dose and I felt very, very comfortable. And I think it's been um, really a significant advantage for us, especially during the pandemic, as we are trying to limit uh, interactions with, a, with the healthcare facility and limiting exposure. Uh, Dervalimab clearly our standard, and it confers a PFS benefit and an overall survival benefit. We do have a breakdown of some of the subsets. When we look at uh, the common subsets, age, uh, sex, uh, histology, we don't see any, any big patterns there. But um, we did see a little bit of difference in terms of PDL1 and EGFR. Tara, can you tell us how you, how do you look at those subsets? Is that something you're measuring, and how do you interpret the data there? Yeah, absolutely. And I think this comes up in clinical practice more often than we would like because we are testing uh, our patients with non-squamous, non-small cell lung cancer. Um, we we do know their EGFR status. We do know their PDL1 status. And the way that I look at this is that the EGFR, uh, patients with the EGFR mutation, very low numbers, um, but there is a signal here that they probably don't benefit as much as the entire population. I mean, uh, extrapolating our knowledge from the stage four setting, we know that these patients may not have the same benefit. Um, I think it's a very difficult dis- discussion, obviously, because at one end, you're trying to offer uh, definitive intent treatment and saying, you know, I want to be able to cure you and I 
and these patients were included in the original trial and be able to afford that five-year survival benefit. But on the other hand, you know, you you sort of want to prevent inadvertent IRAEs if you have to come in with a sequencing of an EGFR TKI down the line. So I think it's a difficult discussion, uh, but I, I do think that in the future, trials will um, exclude patients with activating mutations, um, especially in the locally advanced setting, as uh, more trials read out with um, EGFR TKIs. You know, we now have data from the ADORA trial, uh, which was in the receptable setting, but we also will be uh, eventually seeing data in the locally advanced setting with the use of an EGFR TKI. Coming to the PDL1 status, um, I think we are now consistently seeing a trend, not just in the metastatic setting, but now also in the locally advanced <clears throat> setting. And this was actually really highlighted in the five-year overall survival data um, that patients with PDL1 negative tumors don't seem to really benefit. Um, we know that in the EU, uh, approval for darvalumab is only limited to PDL1 greater than a 1%. At when I may not go as far as limiting my use in the PDL1 negative patients, I wonder if there may be a role for um, either dual immunotherapy in these patients, some perhaps combination chemoimmunotherapy approaches, because I do feel that darvalumab may not be enough. And potentially, ongoing clinical trials will mandate that only PDL1 positive patients be enrolled onto either darvalumab based trials or combination uh, trials in the future. Yeah, it's definitely a challenging subset, uh, particularly when, uh, you know, the study was designed and read out. It really was sort of an exploratory endpoint. It was designed to ask that question. And we, we don't know the PDL one status of a significant portion of patients enrolled in Pacific, but certainly maybe does frame your expectations uh, a little differently. I agree. We, what we need are more biomarkers in this setting. And biomarkers are really what have elevated the care of stage four, and hopefully we'll be close to, to integrating those into the management of stage three non-small cell lung, uh, lung cancer as well. Um, we have some data on the development of new lesions uh, as well. And Brendan, when we look at uh, stage three lung cancer after chemoradiation and dervalimab, uh, we see some differences in the site of new disease. Um, uh, can you comment a, a bit on, on your interpretation of, of some of the new sites of disease um, for patients who progressed after Pacific? Yeah, this is a really interesting slide for a lot of reasons. I think, first of all, it shows that medical oncology is getting the job done, right? I mean, look how, how few patients are recurring systemically, right? That's really quite remarkable in this day and age, and I, I think speaks to the benefit of dravalumab after chemotherapy and radiation. I think you can also argue that, look, you know, if, if, if now we're doing so great systemically, can, can we do better locally? And that's on us as surgeons. It's on Kristen as a radiation oncologist. These are hard tumors to treat. They're bulky with metastinal disease. I don't know if you saw the, the picture of the patient with pneumonitis, if you saw the pretreatment scan. I mean, there was so much bulky metastinal disease. That's hard to clear either with surgery or with radiation therapy. But I think one point here is, is sites of recurrence are often in the chest. You see 85% of progression. That does raise the question, you know, could we do neoadjuvant with surgery? Could we combine some radiation up front, adjuvant radiation, adjuvant immunotherapy? Um, and not to say that these are easy cases with surgery either, but I think it gets at the consideration, what's our best means of local therapy that we can add to this tremendous systemic regimen? In terms of pushing the envelope a little, if we have good control everywhere, and Kristen, if we saw one new lesion, say in the lung, have you ever explored stereotactic body radiotherapy or, or some type of local control in those settings? Sure, absolutely. If we have an isolated area of progression in the lung, we will sometimes use SBRT as a way to render the patient um, disease-free and it's very effective. Um, those are sort of the easiest local recurrences to deal with. Um, what's a little bit harder is when you have mediastinal nodal recurrences. Um, we are sometimes using advanced radiation techniques to tackle those. Uh, proton therapy is, is something that we will sometimes use when you're dealing with a local-only recurrence in the middle of a, a previously irradiated field. But Brendan's acts absolutely right. That's one of the, the biggest challenges is how do we get at that patient population that's going to recur locally that probably has some uh, sort of radiation-resistant biology. And, and that's, I think, an active area of research for us. Also, I think it speaks to the fact that, you know, this really is a, a team effort. And even when someone has recurred or someone has stage four disease, we all need to keep bringing these cases back to term board, involving colleagues, different specialties. That's really the path to the best outcomes. And, you know, once someone has recurrence, stage four disease, it doesn't mean we don't involve 
radiation oncology, surgery, you need to, to, to sometimes be a little bit more aggressive and think maybe a little outside the box. Um, the field is continuing to develop. Mount Pacific is our current agreed upon standard of care with a survival benefit. There are other modifications to that, many other Pacific trials, many other trials looking at slightly different ways to deliver that, different strategies, newer combinations and newer drugs. A study that's been reported out early on has been Keynote 799, slightly different design. This is a two-cohort study looking at induction chemoimmunotherapy followed by combination chemoimmunotherapy during concurrent definitive radiation followed by immunotherapy afterwards. Keynote 799 looks at carboplatin, paclitaxel, and pembrolizumab across histologies or a combination of pembrolizumab, pemetrexid, and cisplatin for non-squamous histology. We saw some of these data presented early on. We see response rates that are very encouraging, north of 70%. A reminder, even though we're seeing two cohorts, this is a non-randomized study. And while the safety data are encouraging and the efficacy data are very encouraging, and there are very, you know, a lot of reasons to think that this strategy could be a superior one, we don't have a control arm. And so as of now, this is more hypothesis generating, very interesting, and promoting other trials, uh, but not really changing our standard. A randomized trial that is going on now is ECOG-ACRIN 5181. And that's looking at our standard chemo radiation followed by DERVA consolidation versus a strategy introducing DERVA early with concurrent radiation therapy and chemotherapy um, followed by DERVA maintenance. And we'll see if the earlier introduction of Dervalimab improves outcomes. Though when these data read out, we will have our work cut out for us because all of your measurements are going to be earlier on. Remember, Pacific started after chemo radiation. Here we're moving it early, so a different population. The numbers won't uh, compare directly across to each other so easily. So um, that'll take a little time to digest. We also have in stage three a lot of uh, perioperative studies, neoadjuvant and adjuvant for resectable stage three, which begs the question, Brendan, how do you make the, the distinction between resectable and unresectable? Yeah, it's always a tough question. I, I firmly believe that surgeons should make that and that, that should at least be at the table to make that decision. Um, and, you know, I always say that like beauty, resectability is in the eye of the beholder, that many people can sort of say something is resectable. But the question, the nuances, I think, are can you also resect all the N2 disease? Can you do it even without a pneumonectomy? We know that even if we're able to resect something completely, patients who undergo pneumonectomy have remarkably high rates of recurrence early on, probably just because they have the equivalent of systemic disease in many cases. Not to say we shouldn't do it in some cases, but, but I think for me that's often a guideline. Multistation, extranodal disease, also sort of a, a warning flag for me. But I, I think, you know, take it on the individual level with patients. I think these are the patients that really need a good discussion at tumor board. But sometimes it's hard to recapitulate the discussion with the patient about that as well. Um, but I think as we're having better and better options, I think surgeons should be less aggressive. In the old days, we had to say, oh, pneumonectomy is all, our only shot at clearing this. We've got great therapy now other than pneumonectomy, um, which patients will tolerate better. I, I agree. And, and the first statement you said, it seems obvious that a surgeon should be the one to make the call. But I see a lot of people that are not surgeons making that decision for the surgeon, which I agree is, I think, a mistake. I think everyone really deserves to, to at least see the surgeon and have that call sort of formally made. Um, immunotherapy, we think, is very likely to alter um, uh, surgically resectable stage three as well. We saw some of that data with the introduction of neoadjuvant immunotherapy, a small series led by Dr. Patrick Ford, and now in a randomized trial, Checkmate 816. This was a study for stage 1B to 3A operable non-small cell lung cancer, where patients were randomized to neoadjuvant chemotherapy and then surgery, or neoadjuvant nivolumab and IPI plus surgery, or neoadjuvant nivolumab plus chemotherapy and surgery. The nivolumab arm uh, really abandoned fairly early on. What we saw was the addition of nivolumab to chemotherapy significantly improved the major pathologic response rate from 9% with chemotherapy alone to 37% with the addition of nivolumab to chemotherapy, but the primary endpoint, one of them, was pathologic complete response rate, the PCR rate, no evidence of tumor on the surgical specimen. With chemotherapy, about 2% achieved a PCR. With nivolumab and chemotherapy, pretty striking numbers here, 24% with a PATH-CR. We can argue a bit about the, the subjectivity of major pathologic response of maybe a little bit of arbitrary uh, assignment of those cutoffs but a pathologic CR rate um, is, is pretty definitive and clearly significantly better with the addition of, of immunotherapy to chemotherapy. Charu, pathologic CR, is this a, a valid surrogate? What do you think of this? 
Yeah, so I think, you know, pathologic CR is something that has been used in other solid tumors uh, for a long time. Breast cancer, um, you know, a lot of neoadjuvant therapy in breast cancer and outcomes are determined uh, based on uh, PAT-CR rates. And um, I think it's a good biologic indicator of uh, the effectiveness of neoadjuvant chemo or neoadjuvant chemoimmunotherapy. Um, I think it's a relatively new concept for lung cancer, just because, as you can see, with chemotherapy, um, you know, we would achieve a PAT-CR rate of about 2.5% or 2.2%. So I think historically, obviously, it has not been used. But I, I do think that this is very striking. It's interesting to see that with um, just a few doses of immunotherapy combined with chemotherapy that we're able to achieve a high rate of PAT-CR. Now, will this translate into uh, long-term outcomes? Will this translate into event-free survival and overall survival remain to be seen? Uh, but I do think that this is very interesting. And I think what's more interesting is that we're seeing responses, regardless of pdl one status here, uh, with the addition of chemotherapy to immunotherapy. Um, so not just in pdl one high, but also pdl one negative patients seem to have PAT-CRs, which is very interesting. Yeah, I, very intriguing data. The advantage of PATH-CR is you get those data right away. Event-free survival, we're going to have to wait a few years and, and wait we will for those data, but we have um, a very frequent, very deep responses as you see a, a pretty significant pathologic regression uh, across the board. Now, anecdotally, what we had heard early on was that the addition of immunotherapy in the neoadjuvant setting made the surgery a little more challenging. There were talks of uh, perihilar fibrosis, uh, of maybe more complicated surgeries. And so we were very interested in the surgical outcomes. Would we see more PATH-CRs but make the surgeon's job a little more challenging, lead to more complications? And you know, I suspected that we would. I couldn't have been more wrong. Um, what we saw across the board was all of the surgical outcomes were better with the addition of immunotherapy. We had fewer conversions to open. We had fewer pneumonectomies. We had uh, fewer complications overall, shorter surgeries, fewer delays. Um, uh, really, just the surgical outcomes across the board were so much better. Brendan, is this something that you had expected? Should I have been surprised by this? Well, I feel like I've been telling people for a while, but I don't think anybody believed me. But you guys should all take these slides and show them to your surgeons, I think, because I think this will hopefully put the nail on the coffin of the myth that it's so hard to operate after neoadjuvant immunotherapy. These are hard cases no matter how we shake them, patients with hyalonodal disease and two nodal disease, so they're always hard. But I think this trial, and, and John Spice, when he presented it, really did a great job. As you said, Steve, across the board, shorter surgeries, less pneumonectomies, more minimally invasive surgery, less con less conversions. And complications were remarkably low. Grade three and four complications, I think, were only 11% in the neoadjuvant immunotherapy arm. So that's great surgery. And it actually seems like you could argue that it's easier. Many of these were numerical advantages and not statistically different. But certainly, this should be encouraging. And this should, I think, dispel that idea that it's so hard to operate after neoadjuvant immunotherapy. Yeah, I completely agree, Brendan. And you know, one of our trainees, when I was showing these data and how surprising it was, um, it seemed very obvious to them, if you have less cancer, wouldn't the surgery be a little easier? And I, I guess to some people, it is It is obvious. More effective therapy leads to, to better outcomes here. Very reassuring, certainly. And we also have other adjuvant studies. So neoadjuvant is certainly an, an interesting approach, and there might be some biologic reasons why that might be preferred. But we also saw some very interesting adjuvant data. At ASCO 21, we saw Dr. Heather Wakely present the EMPOWER-10 study. This was for patients that had completely resected stage 1b to 3a, and using AJCC7, um, non-small cell lung cancer, good performance status. Um, they all received chemotherapy, at least one, no more than four cycles, and were randomized one-to-one -one to receive atezolizumab, pdl one inhibitor, for one year or best supportive care. And the primary endpoint here was disease-free survival in resected stage 2-3 that were pdl one positive. And what we saw was a significant improvement through the hazard ratio of 0.66, the curve splitting immediately, really at the time of the first scan, an improvement in the disease-free survival rate at two years from 61% with standard surgery and chemo to 75% with the addition of a Tezo, that difference maintained at three years. We also saw that maintained statistical significance in the all-comer stage 2-3 as well, the hazard ratio 0.79. If we look at the pdl one high, for example, our hazard ratio was 0.43. So very encouraging data from DFS. We do not yet have OS data. I don't know if that will translate over to an improvement in overall survival. We're still waiting for uh, more subset data as well, uh, but very encouraging results 
in disease-free survival for adjuvant atezolizumab. In contrast, we also have targeted therapy approaches as well for stage 3 in the ADORA trial, which included resected stage 1b to 3a non-small cell lung cancer with a common sensitizing EGFR mutation, DEL19 or your LA58R. We saw that adjuvant osimertinib for three years significantly improved disease-free survival with a hazard ratio of 0.17 in the stage 2-3. In the stage 1b to 3a, your hazard ratio is still a striking 0.20. These are both disease-free survival, not overall survival. Charu, um, uh, to really integrate this, we need to be testing for EGFR. At Penn, is it now standard to test all resected samples for EGFR? And if so, how are you doing that? Yeah, so I think this is a very difficult um, problem to tackle. Um, you know, when do we test? You know, we we are at an institution that uh, has really adopted reflex testing um, on our small uh, diagnostic samples. Um, so if a patient has stage four disease and if they have a diagnostic biopsy or a cytology sample, um, and if it's read out as non-squamous, non-small cell lung cancer, the sample automatically goes to our molecular pathology lab and gets gene sequencing. And the same actually applies for our early stage patients. So if they have these pre-surgical samples um, that are read out as non-squamous, they, they will. But as we all know, um, there is a significant amount of um, quantity, not sufficient rate, or patients that just, or samples that just don't have enough DNA to be tested. In the metastatic setting, we have been using liquid biopsies to really rescue uh, that, that situation so that we can get gene sequencing. However, I think it becomes challenging in the early state setting where, you know, the process sort of just stops if it's QNS. So we are really trying to be innovative in terms of incorporating some um, electronic uh, or EMR-based nudges to really inform uh, staging within our uh, medical record. And the staging can then help um, deliver sort of nudges to physicians to order testing on the surgical specimen if in case they were missed on the pre-surgical or the diagnostic specimen, or for some reason, if the sample was just not sufficient for testing, which I think will be really helpful so that we can capture patient samples, um, you know, sort of comprehensive data uh, across stages. Uh, so if the pre-surgical sample is not sufficient, then we can really uh, default to a very nicely sized surgical sample um, and these results can be available by the time the patient is uh, due to see a medical oncologist. I think this has really come about uh, based on the data that we're seeing uh, with Audora. I mean, this um, degree of benefit is just striking. But it's also important to note that when we look at Empower 010, uh, we're not really seeing that significant benefit in, in subsets of patients that may have had EGFR or ALK. Again, recognizing that these patients were not excluded a priori, but, you know, when they looked at the subset analyses, uh, the benefit of adjuvant immunotherapy is just not there. So I think we need to be um, really mindful that we need to genotype our patients, not just for stage four, but also our early stage patients as these therapies move up into the earlier stage settings. Yeah, that makes all the sense in the world. We use these biomarkers to guide stage four. We should be using them in stage three. I think, as you mentioned, a little easier in adjuvant after Brendan gives us a big sample to test. Neoadjuvant can be a little harder. And if we run into that QNS neoadjuvant, um, then sometimes we're in a bit of a bind if we're thinking neoadjuvant immunotherapy. That certainly makes life a little trickier. Um, and we'll sort of have to, to deal with those in our tumor boards as they come up. And so with that, why don't we go to a, a virtual tumor board between the four of us? These are cases from our own practices. And I'd love to get some of, of your opinions here. Um, I think all of them illustrate some some very specific points. And the first case is one of mine. This is one of my actual patients. Um, this is a 72-year-old female. Uh, she was a, a current smoker at the time. She's since quit. Uh, she presented with chest pain in the ER, which ultimately was attributed just to GERD, to heartburn. That, that went away. But an X-ray did at the time reveal some bulky mediastinal adenopathy leading to a CT scan in the ER that showed a two-centimeter nodule out in the periphery on the right side. Bulky right paratracheal and AP window adenopathy, bilateral adenopathy, actually. Um, she was not seen by us. She was uh, discharged from the ER to her primary care doctor, who arranged for a CT-guided right upper lobe lung biopsy that revealed a squamous non-small cell lung cancer. Here are her CT scans, and you can see that um, right upper lobe nodule way on the periphery. That was biopsy. Thought that was pretty accessible. 
Um, as you can see in the mediastinal windows there on the right of your screen, some bulky mediastinal nodes there. Um, this patient had a PET scan that showed uptake in the lung nodule and intense uptake throughout the nodes. And so the doctor referred her to us for definitive chemoradiation. We actually had a, a very important clinical trial at the time. And so this patient was referred for a stage 3C squamous non-small cell lung cancer. Um, Brendan, can you comment uh, a little bit? I think you know what we're getting at here on the, the choice of biopsy here. Yeah, absolutely. It's a, it's a missed opportunity. Unfortunately, it happens too often. I, I, I love for us to get involved early so we can guide the patient journey in this. Um, certainly, you know, this patient has pretty obvious PET-positive disease, but, but I think best practice now is to actually stage the mediastinum. This could have been easily done with an EBIS that could get tissue, get, get multiple passes, get enough for molecules, all these things that we talk about, and confirm the nodal disease that, that we see. Not necessarily wrong, but it slows down the patient journey, I think, in many respects. I love to get the PET scan first, biopsy the highest stage potential of disease, and go that route. This is an interesting point. I think that um, for a lot of primary care physicians, pulmonologists, internists, hospitalists, they won't call medical oncologist, surgeon, radiation oncologist until they have a diagnosis. Is that proper standard operating procedure now, or is it okay if you have a high enough suspicion? Let me go to you, Charu. Are you okay getting these calls before the diagnosis? Yeah, I think we should change our mindset to your point, um, Stephen, and also to your point, Brendan, that I think we should be involved earlier, um, not just in the stage four setting, but also, you know, if uh, a patient like this presents so that we can take it to our multidisciplinary tumor board and, you know, have our interventional pulmonologist stage this patient and obtain a diagnosis at the same time. Um, so I do think that we should be um, going away from that mindset of, you know, no meat, no trade. We should actually, you know, really be thinking about, yes, getting involved earlier. Yeah. I understand that uh, referring physicians maybe don't want to, to take up our time in those settings. But I think coming from us, it will save us time if we're involved earlier because we can sort of help to guide those initial biopsies and, and you know, really, I think most importantly, save the patient time. That's really um, uh, what we should be focused on. So I think we can dispel that myth. You can call an oncologist without a diagnosis. You can call a surgeon before you have a diagnosis. They can help you get there. And so uh, don't be afraid to, to get there. So in this case, we have what we think is a 3C squamous non-small cell lung cancer. We have a few options here, induction chemo and then chemoradiation, definitive chemoradiation, and then dervalumab, the Pacific regimen, uh, molecular testing, um, mediastinal staging, or neoadjuvant chemoradiation, uh, and then evaluate for surgery. Kristen, let me go to you here. This case is presented to you. You're running the tumor board. Um, uh, what do you think our next steps should be here? So let's go with the mediastinal staging with bronchoscopy and EBUS. Yeah, so I think that, uh, that that really is the point here. This person um, had bulky, pet-avid mediastinal adenopathy, and it really looked suspicious, and we agreed. We, we were thinking that this would be a, a stage 3C. We were getting ready for radiation, but we did want to confirm that, um, not just for the patient, but for ourselves. And so the bronchoscopy here with biopsies of all the lymph nodes actually showed pretty active sarcoidosis. Uh, no symptoms. It's a new diagnosis for her, but very clear granulomas. And so with no documented nodal status, we went from a stage 3C to, to really a stage 1, um, with just a 2-centimeter right upper lobe uh, a pitch shot, um, uh, really pretty pretty easy. And um, so she underwent a, a VATS right upper lobe lobectomy at a 2.2-centimeter squamous lung cancer. The lymph nodes had very clear classic granulomas um, and no evidence of cancer. That's T1C. Um, that's a, a stage 1A3 non-small cell lung cancer. So no adjuvant therapy needed, no radiation therapy needed. She's been getting her scans. She's now to, to once a year, and her last scan was, was August 2021. She's now four years disease-free. Um, had we done chemoradiation, I suspect she would be disease-free now as well. Um, but but would have had much more toxicity. And we would have been patting ourselves on the back when really that would have been mismanagement. So I think the point here is we can't make any assumptions. And uh, you know early invasive mediastinal staging, I think, is critical to the best outcomes. And it's really a, a point that we keep coming back to. And every time she comes, I make sure that a different resident or a different fellow sees her so that, that we learn from this um, so, so we do our biopsies the right way. Well, it's a it's a great point too, Steve, on just following these patients after chemo radiation or after neoadjuvant therapy. Um, the group from MD Anderson and others have written about this concept of nodal immune flare, this idea that you just see these immune reactions in these nodes and they'll sometimes be pet avid. And so I, I think you know we always have to biopsy and never sort of assume, just as you say. 
Absolutely. No, lymph nodes are reactive. They react to all types of things. And so um, it makes such a big difference. And we shouldn't be scared to, to biopsy, to bronchoscopy, EBUS. These are safe procedures. We do them all the time. So we, we probably underutilize these. Brendan, let me turn, uh, turn things over to you. I think you had a case um, from your own practice as well. So this is a former light smoker, um, good performance status, found to have a left-sided lung mass on a routine chest x-ray as he was getting set up for shoulder surgery. And this is a very active guy up and around doing lots of stuff, very um, you know, medically literate guy as well. Had a 5.9 by 3.1 centimeter spiculated mass with hyaluron AP window adenopathy on his CT scan. And so, you know, sometimes some places will want you to get a tissue diagnosis before you get the pet. We're, we're lucky enough often to be able to get a PET scan. As I mentioned, I, I love to sort of see the highest stage of disease to go after that. His primary tumor had an SUV of 16.7, and he had adenopathy in the left hilum, the left prevascular space, and the AP window, and had a negative brain MRI. And I do think it's obviously important that we remember that idea of getting a brain MRI in these patients with advanced disease. Here you can see his PET scan. And, you know, it's a little bit challenging to see in, in this, but, but you can see it surrounds the PA there a little bit when, in these non-contrast scans. I always love to get a contrast CT scan on this. Um, I, don't, I couldn't find one here. I didn't have one here initially. But you can see he's got multi-station, relatively bulky N2 disease kind of a, around the, the pulmonary artery and in the hilum. So, so what do people think um, in terms of next options? What, what do you think? How would they do it down at Emory, Kristen? Well, I mean, I think we would we would try to sample his lymph nodes. Um, but if you go back, they look like they might be difficult to, well, actually, the, the empty nodes might be difficult to access, but the hyalur lymph nodes, I think, could definitely be accessed by EBUS. Yeah, we thought that was a good good starting space, too. Go ahead, Steve. Yeah, I had a similar question, Brent. I mean, those those hyalur nodes are, are going to be very easy to get to, I think, and some of those N2 nodes. But that sort of AP window node that's sort of anterior, is that something that you can get with, with EBUS? Yeah, that's a challenge. I think we sometimes quit on the AP window nodes, and so it's really challenging to get with EBUS. Sometimes you can get lucky and find a window. Um, you know, if you really need to know, you could do a VATS, but you sort of hate to do a surgical option on something for, for just staging. But I think if it's really important, it's going to change your treatment option that that's reasonable. I remember reading at some point, I haven't been brave enough to sort of do this here, but I remember reading about transaortal biopsies. I think there's two or three interventional pulmonologists who love to tell stories about that. doesn't seem like a great idea to me, but in theory, you could do it. Yeah, I agree. Um, so we did do a bronchoscopy in EBUS, and, and this guy had an adenocarcinoma, um, PDL1, 7 to 10%. Um, he was positive both in the subcranial nodes and the hyalur nodes. Um, presumably, those AP window nodes are positive as well. Um, we're fortunate often to get molecular testing early as well, and this guy had seen a couple other folks by the time he saw us, but he had no targetable mutations. He had enough time for that to come back. So we were left with a guy with clinical T3N2 disease, and you know, in the surgical opinion, and he saw a couple of surgeons to think this through carefully, um, I thought you know, probably resectable, but resectable with a pneumonectomy, which, which raises the sort of questions of what do we do in that situation? And the options neoadjuvant chemotherapy followed by surgery. If, if we have a trial for neoadjuvant immunotherapy, um, uh, is he a good candidate for that? How do you think about that? How do you evaluate candidates for that? Um, definitive chemoradiation um, or chemotherapy plus immune checkpoint inhibitor. Should we treat this guy with the equivalent of systemic disease? He's got multi-station N2 disease. What do, what do people think? Yeah, so, you know, I think from the old learnings of primordiality therapy um, in the subgroup analysis of the intergroup trial, the 0139 trial, we did see that if patients, you know, after receiving, let's say, chemoradiation therapy, if they ended up getting a pneumonectomy, the, the benefit of primordiality therapy was really erased by the fact that they were getting a pneumonectomy and survival wasn't better. So at least at our tumor board, if we upfront have decided that a patient will require a pneumonectomy, uh, we tend to go with the definitive chemoradiation alone uh, because we find that perhaps trimodality therapy may not be superior in those settings. And we may now, with the availability of consolidation darvalumab at the five-year survival rates that we're seeing, that we may be able to potentially cure these patients with bimodality therapy using concurrent, concurrent chemoradiation followed by immunotherapy. But I do think that, you know, keeping the Checkmate 816 data in mind, I think it would be really interesting to think about using chemoimmunotherapy in a neoadjuvant setting in such a patient to see if we could potentially um, save uh, this patient from a pneumonectomy. Although I, I think the data on, on downstaging 
um, the surgery uh, from a pneumonectomy to a lobectomy. I think we still have to wait a few years for that question to be answered. Uh, in your experience, Brendan, have you seen um, that happen frequently with neoadjuvant chemoimmunotherapy? I think it's tough. I have one patient anecdotally who I, I thought needed a pneumonectomy initially, and then after neoadjuvant immunotherapy, I was able to do a lobectomy. But it's challenging because you're sort of cutting in or close to areas where there is that kind of scarring and where you're not sure if there's a pathologic response. You know, should you take out the area that has, even if it has a complete pathologic response, I think that's kind of our default mode right now. So I rarely tell patients that I'm going to keep you from needing a pneumonectomy. There might be one, the next case might show a little bit of that. So we'll see how the different, different treatment strategy. I think that bottom option, chemotherapy, immunotherapy, these are, are systemic options alone, things we're very comfortable with. And you know, we know in the stage four setting, we have long-term survivors. We, we probably do have people that I think are cured with that therapy, but that really needs to take a backseat to definitive local therapy. And um, really, that's only appropriate if patients aren't candidates for surgery, aren't candidates for radiation. And again, just like we don't decide if something's resectable um, without input from a surgeon, we shouldn't decide that someone's not a candidate for chemoradiation without discussing it with our radiation oncologist. Yeah, that's such an important decision for the tumor board and for the uh, multidisciplinary team to make. And, and that's really where multidisciplinary care becomes so important for a stage three disease. Totally agree. And I, and I think you can see some of the issues here on this one. And this really gets at what Kristen was talking about earlier. So this guy got um, carbopaclitaxel and radiation therapy, tolerated it great. But then he gets a repeat CT, you know, early on again to consider is he eligible for DERVA, and you see he's got just these big necrotic nodes all along the PA, and and you know that might worry some people. But I think as what do you think, Kristen? Does it worry you? Certainly nothing grown, but they just look necrotic. Yeah, I mean, I just think you know as long as there's no evidence of any sort of um, distant metastasis on this CT scan, you just proceed with immunotherapy and continue to follow them on subsequent imaging. Yeah, I think it's really important to, to to frame that for the patient as well when you're ordering that scan to make sure we explain to them that this is not going to be sort of the, the best result of radiation. This is just an early look at things to make sure that it's safe to go forward to, to really set the right expectation. Yeah, it's amazing to look at all that necrosis in those nodes. They, they're setting them up for immunotherapy. It's beautiful. <laughs> um, I think, Kristen, you had a, an interesting case. Can, can we go to your case? Yeah. So this is also one of my patients um, that I met a few years back. Um, he's 76 years old. He's a farmer. Um, he does have multiple comorbidities, but yet he lives independently, is ambulatory. Um, he has chronic kidney disease, some baseline emphysema, essential thrombocytosis, and he does use home oxygen at baseline. Um, he was down to have a 5.6 by 3.1 centimeter right upper lobe mass, as well as a 1.9 centimeter satellite nodule in the right apex. Uh, he did undergo an EBUS and biopsy of the right upper lobe nodule that showed squamous cell carcinoma. He was PDO1 positive, but low. Um, he had his right hilar lymph node and right paratracheal lymph node stations biopsied, and they were positive. A subcarinal lymph node was negative. He was staged as T3N2 stage 3B. Um, his PET scan again confirmed no evidence of distant metastasis, and his brain MRI showed no evidence of intracranial disease. Um, and here is, uh, you could go to the next slide. So, this is an image of his PET CT. You could see his tumor is sizable. Again, there's that satellite nodule, so your radiation field is going to be. Um, encompassing a fair amount of that right upper lobe. And of course, he does have the N2 disease as well. Um, and, and my medical oncologist and I went back and forth on this case, trying to make a decision about whether or not we thought he could tolerate concurrent chemoradiation. And, you know, we really wanted to give him the chance to get um, the best chance of being cured for this cancer. So we decided to, to ultimately go ahead with the definitive chemoradiation. He got weekly carbotaxol. Um, this is a picture of his radiation isodose lines that I was referencing before. Um, you can see the, the red and yellow and green lines are, are regions of uniform dose around the tumor. Um, and if you look at the next slide, we see the um, dose volume histogram. The lung V20 was, um, it was low. It was less than 35%. It was between 25%. The lungs minus the CTV was about 20%. Um, and, and that was quite good. I was meeting my normal tissue constraints, and I felt very comfortable giving this man definitive chemoradiation. 
And he, he did really well. This is the, an example of that first scan that we were just referencing. You can see that the tumor in this case has contracted down. Um, it is much smaller than what we saw before. Um, he's sort of starting to develop those expected radiation changes within the field. Um, he had really no high-grade toxicities during his chemoradiation. Um, he then went on to get Dervalumab. Um, he received a year of Dervalumab. Um, and interestingly, right about a year after his immunotherapy, he did go into the hospital for some diarrhea, and he developed immune-related colitis. Um, and he, he had multiple hospital admissions. He was managed aggressively with maximal immunosuppression, with prophylactic antibiotics. Um, and eventually this got better. Um, and he's without evidence of disease right now. Um, again, those expected radiation fibrotic changes in the right upper lobe. Um, and he, I think, is a success story. Again, somebody might have looked at him and said, no way, I'm not giving him concurrent chemoradiation. He wears HOMO2. He won't be able to make it. Um, but I think with, with good radiation planning, you can control the dose, um, which will, you know, lessen the likelihood of radiation-induced pneumonitis. Um, and, and he did really well. Again, he did develop a high-grade um, immunotherapy toxicity, but it was aggressively managed and he got over it and he is still farming and still active. So I, I like this case for, for those points. Kristen, I think this is a, a great illustration and another case where we don't want to make assumptions. I know we're a little short on time, but um, I'm almost hesitant to ask, have you ever used proton in these settings? Is proton radiation something we should be thinking about? Um, so I, I will use it in some people that have pretty impaired pulmonary function. Um, that I'm really worried about um, causing a high-grade toxicity or any radiation pneumonitis. So some people with really poor pulmonary function tests, I will occasionally use protons. But generally speaking, for um, somebody that's never been irradiated, I will go with photons. Usually photon therapy. Okay, Brendan, I think you had one more kind of interesting case. Let me turn things over to you here. Sure. This is a 51-year-old female, never smoked or presented with hemoptysis. Um, great performance status, still working, young kids, um, and found got bronched and had a left lower lobe adenocarcinoma with endobronchoextension, really coming up from the left lower lobe, um, almost at the junction of the left lower lobe and the left upper lobe. Um, big tumor, 6.4 by 5.8 by 9.6, hot on the PET scan. She had level 7 disease, AP window, you know, arguable disease, SUV of 2, and obvious metastatic disease, and the brain MRI was negative. And so here you can see some of the issues. So big tumor, some of that might just be consolidation from, a, from the bronchus being full of tumor. Comes though right up to where you would normally take off the upper lobe surgically. And you can see the extent of, of collapse there um, on the panel on the right. <clears throat> if you go to the next, you'll see your PET scan. And, and so bulky N2 disease, you know, maybe needs a pneumonectomy or a sleeve um, and, and, a, and a big bulky tumor. So, so what do people think? And, and uh, I don't know, Steve, how would you guys manage this down there? Well, uh, again, I think we got, we've got to do mediastinal stage, and we really want to know the accurate stage. And while you look at this, and, and you're going to make a lot of assumptions here, you know, I've been proven wrong in every possible way over the years. So I think mediastinal staging, really confirming nodal status, getting that stage down, and, and really getting enough tissue for, for, for the next steps. Yeah, that seems to be our take-home message and one that I wholeheartedly agree with. And, and so we did a bronchoscopy in EBUS. Even though she'd already had the bronch for hemoptysis, you know, again, it's not that big of a deal. And so we send her back and, and do an EBUS. Um, and she had a level 7 uh, adenocarcinoma. And we were able to get the EGFR back. And I think this illustrates a couple of important points. You know, you kind of trigger as a never smoker, she's going to be EGFR, but she's a Hispanic lady. I think we just looked at, at Cornell or New York City. Hispanics had EGFR rates higher than 30% in resected patients. And, and so we know that those patients are enriched. But we also know we just have to look on patients. You can't just guess about which patients may and may not have EGFR mutations. Um, so this is a tough one. She's got bulky primary, bulky N2. You know, it would be tough for surgery and for radiation. And maybe we could do a sleeve, but it'd be tough. It might be a pneumonectomy. She's young. She's active. She's still working. You know, that's another factor with radiation. She doesn't really want to come in every day. So, so what do people think? And the treatment options, I think, are on the next slide. And she's got an EGFR mutation. I think this is a tough one. Um, you know, especially <clears throat> as we know that this is a patient with an EGFR mutation. So, you know, chemoradiation followed by dorvalumab would 
would have been our standard, but we know that already we're hesitant to deliver Durvalumab in the setting of a known EGFR mutation. Chemoradiation followed by osimertinib would be a great choice, although we don't really have um, data from the LORA trial just yet. Um, neoadjuvant osimertinib and reassess, uh, you know, sounds very tempting uh, because, you know, really biologically we're targeting the tumor, we're delivering precision medicine. Uh, but again, the long-term outcomes with that approach are not, um, we're not there yet. But I, I do think that that, uh, you know, that paradigm on, uh, definitely seems very appealing in, in the situation where we know that, um, you know, we can't really get a good surgical outcome right away. I mean, we've got bulky multistation adenopathy. We've got a very large tumor. And I think that you know, when we think of, of what we're trying to do and, and why we can't just look at algorithms, when we look at chemoradiation, when we look at surgery here, a question we just have to honestly ask ourselves is, are we likely to provide cure with those modalities? And you know, one of the striking things that I learned from the Adora trial was not just the benefit of osimertinib, but how unlikely we are to cure someone with a, a stage three EGFR mutant lung cancer. The, the control arm did, I think, very poorly um, and, and really just showing that, that it can be hard to cure these, that these may be spread a little early. And so we don't have data to support uh, what, what I think I would probably do here, but I, I do think that I'm going to go targeted therapy here. And maybe um, if this is a case where I don't think I'm going to be able to, to provide a likely chance of cure, maybe we just stay with osimertinib here. I, I don't know if that's, that's right or wrong, though. Great thoughts. I'll, I'll go to the next slide, then maybe I'll let Kristen weigh in. Um, this one I had to put out to Twitter just because I was new here. I didn't want to step on people's toes, and I thought I could get consensus. And I was very savvy. Notice I did the chemo RT as two choices, so it split the votes for that. So it makes it look like more we're thinking about surgery here. But you know, remarkably, this is probably the, the most participated in Twitter poll. I had 276, and it generated an incredible discussion about all the things that all the panel just talked about. Um, but because of patient wishes as well, I wanted to keep working and see how it does, and it just made sense to us. We started neoadjuvant osimertinib and then decided to reassess. And she really had an amazing response. I mean, and, and this is still an active case going on, and so I'd love to get people's opinions. And so you can see she's got some residual disease, so now does local control become important? We don't think OC is curative necessarily, right? And so we think local control may have a role here. Um, the N2 disease really shrunk down. The disease inside the bronchus went away, and she looks resectable via lobectomy. Um, but is that the right thing, or should we do? She's young, 51. Should we give her proton radiation therapy, chemoradiation now? What do people think? It's a really interesting case, and that response is really outstanding. I think I would want to restage with the PET scan, too, just to, you know, understand the full extent of her metabolically active residual disease. Um, but I think if she hasn't developed metastasis at this point, then local therapy should be considered. And, you know, whether it's with surgery, um, whether it's with, with radiation, certainly it's much easier to treat this tumor remnant now than what it was before at 10 centimeters. And I think that that was the right decision. Brendan, uh, that initial surgery, I assume, would have been a pneumonectomy. I think so. Where the disease came up inside the bronchus, one might be able to do a, a sleeve resection, hook those together, but I, it looked like a pneumonectomy to me. No, but now I think it's a lobectomy. Well, a lobectomy to get residual disease, but then we, it's sort of a philosophical yeah. question. Are we just targeting residual disease or are we targeting anything that has ever housed a malignant cell? And I think that we, we don't really know the answer, not just in lung cancer, but in lots of different cancers and head and neck cancers as well. And, and this is a really fascinating question. I think that um, this is a case where I'm probably not likely to stop osimertinib, where I think that um, osimertinib is uh, likely controlling disease that was beyond the realm of what we saw. Um, but if there is residual tumor and if it's a lobectomy, there may be some value in resecting residual disease to stave off progression or at least delay it. There's not strong data for it, but I think the study of residual disease is, is fascinating. It's been done in some cases, maybe in my own clinic, um, but not strong data to support its use yet. I think that I, I would consider resecting residual disease with a lot of caveats. Yeah, and then the question is, do you... Do you offer adjuvant chemotherapy prior to reinitiating osimertinib? You know, knowing that it was N2 disease to begin with, I think um, 
I would I would prefer to deliver adjuvant chemotherapy in this situation, um, especially if this patient is then taking the surgical resection. But I, I mean, what a fantastic response. And I think you make a similar argument for adjuvant radiation therapy, given the bulk of the metastinal and two disease initially, too, if you went the surgical route. So lots of, lots of complex nuanced questions. Yes. And I think illustrates how we really need uh, multiple people weighing in um, for all these challenging cases. Stage three non-small cell lung cancer, very heterogeneous. We, we are up right on the time. Maybe just one or two questions I see from, from the audience. Um, Charu, in, in a sort of very abbreviated fashion, um, Stage three, unresectable EGFR mutant lung cancer today. They finished chemo radiation. Kristen did a, a great job. No problems after that. They're coming to see you. Are you going to give them DERVA? Are you going to give them OC? Or are you going to just watch with nothing? What are you doing today off study? I'm not uh, administering Durvalumab based on, you know, accumulating evidence, not just from the Pacific trial, but also from our experience um, across stages of non-small cell lung cancer, um, I'm, I am having a very detailed discussion with the patients about the pros and cons, about the specific data, and about our ability to offer um, survival benefit, um, but also, also clearly stating that the number of patients with EGFR mutant disease on that trial was very, very small. And our experience of um, having to sequence an IO agent um, with a TKI, uh, you know, we, we know that there are significant IRAEs um, that may develop. Um, so at this point, I am actually refraining from administering immunotherapy. I have several patients in my practice now who have not received immunotherapy in this setting. Very, very reasonable. Kristen, what, one last question here. I thought this was an interesting one from the audience. Um, this is looking at some of the biology have we explored in the Pacific trial or otherwise, how does PDL one expression on the tumor change after chemoradiation? Any comment on that? Yeah, that's a great question. So certainly preclinical data suggests that radiation can induce PDL one expression in tumors and tumor microenvironment. Um, there are ongoing studies that are asking this question. One anecdotal um, situation exists in Europe where p- patients with tumors that are PDL one negative don't qualify for Dervalumab. And I know in certain instances, patients are getting biopsied after chemoradiation to see if they do have uh, PDL1 positive tumors and, you know, in, in previous PDL1 negative tumors. So that'll be interesting to see some of those results in the future and see what's actually happening in terms of our real patient data. Well, the, the hour has, has flown by. It's always a pleasure speaking uh, with, with all of you, but we are at time. And so um, with that, we will end this CME activity brought to you by, by peer review. I want to thank our expert faculty here, Dr. Charu Agarwal, Dr. Kristen Higgins, Dr. Brendan Stiles. Uh, thank you very much for tuning in. This activity is accredited by PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash DDV860. This activity is supported by an independent educational grant from AstraZeneca.